Our lesson this morning comes from Luke 9, verses 23 and 24. And Jesus said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Pray with me. Father God, we would all follow Jesus in spirit and truth. And so as we turn to this passage, I pray that you will lay it open to us through the power of your Holy Spirit. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Well, this passage to the ears of of first century believers was probably a little uncomfortable. So when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, the folks who heard that passage, that that pronouncement for the first time, knew full well what he was talking about. Because a rather common occurrence for these folks was the scene of, of crucifixions. Probably countless times they had seen Condemned men forced to pick up the crossbeam of the cross, drag it bruised and battered up a hill where they suffered a a horrible and brutal death. The cross was a symbol of, of pain, of torture, and Roman domination. And so, for Jesus' audience to hear this this injunction, if anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross and follow me, that had to make people wince a little bit. And I would suggest to you that for those of us living in 21st century America, if we understand what Jesus is really saying within the meat of this passage, it makes us wince too. And point of fact, as we look through this, as we peel back what it is that that Jesus is saying, the starting point is, if anyone would come after me, well, those of us who claim the name of Christ want to come after Jesus. And so it behooves us to know what it is that he's saying here. And so he says that we're called upon to deny ourselves, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and we're to do that daily, and we're to follow him. And so as we follow Jesus, if we would come after him, we need to understand what he's saying to us, how he's speaking to us, not merely through the ears of first century believers, but because scriptures for for us throughout space and time, it speaks to the human condition. We need to understand what he's saying to us today. And so we come to the portion about denying ourselves. Now, at the outset, it's important to, to realize that when Jesus is talking to us, yes, he's concerned about what we do. But Jesus is never just concerned about our outward behavior. He's always concerned about the heart because because the heart is what motivates what we do. It's what motivates what we think. It's what motivates who we are. And so when Jesus is saying, deny yourself, he's really speaking past our conduct straight to to our core being. Recall he referred to the, the Pharisees as being whitewashed tombs, clean and shiny on the outside, but on the inside, full of death and decay. And so when Jesus says, deny yourself, he's really speaking to what's in here. He's speaking to our sin nature, 
the old man, as we sometimes say. And Paul really speaks to the, to the crux of this sin nature in Galatians 5, 19 through 22. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I think for most of us, when we see lists, we start checking things off. We want to see how we're doing. And so right away, if you look at a list like this, you might think, well, you know, um, sexual immorality, I don't really do that. Impurity, sensuality, no, I'm, I'm, I'm good there. Idolatry, I don't, I don't fall down in front of any kind of golden calf like the Israelites, so that's probably okay. Sorcery, no, I don't do that. If I, if I did, I'd live in a nicer house. Um, drunkenness, orgies, no, that's not me. And so we look at a list and we think, by and large, I'm doing okay. And that's sort of the nature of who we are. We compare our, ourselves to what we're not doing as opposed to really looking at the meat of what Jesus is saying and what Paul is, is, is speaking to us through the, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And you see here that the, the words that I've underlined, if you peel back the veil of your heart, you start to see that a lot of these things are common to a lot of us. For instance, idolatry. Now again, if you, if you talk about idols to 21st century America, more often than not, you are thinking about that golden calf, right? But again, Jesus is so much more worried about what's going on in here, the heart. And Calvin once taught that the heart, the human heart, is an idol factory. We manufacture things to worship. We are creatures of worship, and we will either worship the one true God, the way he's called us to worship him, or we'll find something else to worship. And very often, we latch on to, to the things around us, and, and they could be good things, but we worship, we worship the created world rather than the creator. Calvin also said that a lot of the problem that we have in our heart, it's not that we want the wrong thing, although sometimes that's true. We want something way too much. And whatever it may be that we've latched on to, as we start to bend our lives toward it, and we start to make it more important than God Almighty, it becomes an idol. And again, these can be good things. Take food. Well, without food, we die, right? And most of us really enjoy good food. I was raised in a family that enjoys good food, and my wife fixes good food, and, you know, it's been said that I like barbecue. <laughs> and, but the reality of it is, in our culture, we can turn food into an idol, can we not? What about time? What about our schedules? Now, it's good to keep a schedule, but we can make that schedule an idol. What about stewardship of money? Again, same thing. There's any number of things that, that we can start making more important than God himself. And before we know it, we're worshiping an idol. And the thing is about worshiping those idols is they're very often hidden. About the only time we become aware of them is when they get scuffed. Because when circumstances or people scuff our idols, we get mad. And that's when we start to see where the idol is actually existing in our lives. So what happens? Well, get upset. Maybe, maybe there's someone at work who does things the way you don't want to do them. 
Maybe there's someone at home. How many of your workplaces are filled with enmity or strife? How many of our family lives are, are, are occupied by dissensions or divisions? If you want something and you can't have it, you're envious or you're jealous of the way you wish things were. In James 4, we, we read, what causes quarrels and divisions among you? Isn't it that you want what you can't have? You can't have it, and so you, you get mad. James likens that to murder. And so as we get mad, we find ourselves with what feels like a righteous indignation. It feels like it. After all, wasn't Jesus mad when, when the holiness of God's temple was desecrated? It's really the only time you see him get mad. And on the inside, it feels like you know, one of our, our, our idols is being desecrated, and we get mad. James also tells us in, in chapter 1, verse 20, that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now, it's certainly true that Scripture tells us, be angry and do not sin. But we as believers need to understand how we apply that passage in our context. If you look at Psalm 4, verse 4, the psalmist writes, be angry and do not sin. He goes on to say, ponder your heart on your own bed. When you find yourself getting angry, you need to stop and think, why am I angry? Because as a human being, very rarely is your anger driven by something akin to self-righteous, uh, akin to, to holy righteousness. It's very often self-righteousness. And so we have to go before God Almighty and we have to ask him to give us wisdom to see into the dark corners of our heart to see why it is we're angry. What idol has been scuffed? And in his grace, he will peel back the veil of your heart and show you things about yourself that you won't see without his help. And it may be things that you don't want to see. But that's how we are angry and do not sin. We use it as an early warning device to, to let us know that there is an idol there that's escaped our attention. And that's how we deny ourselves. We, we become aware of these idols by God's grace. And having become aware of those idols, we deny them. If we don't if we don't know that they're there, it becomes very difficult to do anything about them. But in God's grace, he will reveal these things to us. Now, the thing is, with regard to denying our idols, Christ has really already done the substantive work. In Galatians 5.24, Paul goes on to write that those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's an important thing to, to understand. Our, our sin nature, those of us who belong to Christ, our sin nature was put on him. He took it to the cross. He was crucified. He was buried. And he rose again on the third day, leaving behind the broken power of our sin, broken in the grave. And so in Romans 6, Paul goes on to explain that if we're united with Christ in his death through baptism, we are also raised with Christ when he rose from the dead. And so sin no longer has any power over us. What that means is we should consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And that's a transforming reality. And so, again, for those of us who know Christ as our Lord and Savior, we look at Luke 24, verse 5, through a different lens. That's the passage where the, where the women are coming to the tomb to finish preparing the body. And they meet the two angels. The two angels say, why 
Do you look for the living among the dead? Jesus isn't here. He's risen. That's a powerful question. Why do we look for the living among, among the dead? Jesus isn't there. He's left the tomb. What has stayed behind is the broken power of our sin. But I'm convinced that the reason so many of us Christians lead weak, insipid spiritual lives is that we keep going back to the tomb. We keep going back and visiting the, our, our sin. Though its power over us is broken, we keep going back. When y'all are done here worshiping this morning, probably none of you are going to go to the local graveyard and have a picnic. But spiritually speaking, rather than following Christ, we find ourselves being pulled back to the tomb because the call of our sin is seductive. It has no power over us, but we have a hard time leaving it behind. The good news, folks, is we're not alone. That, that's, that's part of our falling condition. Yes, the power of our sin is broken, but the reality of it is we still live in the shadow of Genesis 3. And even though we, we want to follow Christ, and, and hopefully by his grace we're doing it more, more, more diligently day by day, we still hear that call of the old man, don't we? Well, you're not alone. Paul in Romans 7 lays out this very problem. And he says, you know, I don't, I, don't, I don't do the things I want to do. The things I don't want to do, those things I'm doing. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And, and I personally find it very comforting that Paul, who saw the risen Christ, still struggles with this. Because there are times when I am struggling with, with my, my lingering sin. I know in faith that the power of, the, of my sin over me is broken. I know that it's in the tomb. I know that I'm following Christ. But I hear that seductive call all the time. And so I take great comfort in knowing that, that Paul, who saw the risen Christ, had the same issue. Now, Paul goes on to explain to us that progressively we will, we will get better. We will, we will be more sanctified as we follow Jesus. And so this struggle, though it will never go away, should diminish. But in the meantime, we have this, this struggle. And it's a very real struggle, which is why Jesus tells us, deny yourself, but then take up your cross. The act of taking up our cross to deal with our sin is a deliberate, intentional decision. We read in Romans 1, verse 1, that we're called to be living sacrifices. We're called to present ourselves to Christ as a living sacrifice. And this is our spiritual act of worship. Deal Moody once said, however, that the problem with being a living sacrifice is that you keep wanting to crawl off the altar. And that's true. It's that, that, that tug of that sin nature. It, it, it tugs at us and it keeps wanting to pull us off which is precisely why we have to do this daily. We daily have to go to Christ, and we daily have to recognize the idols of our heart, and we daily have to give them over to him and ask for his help. This isn't a, a, a one-time deal where you're baptized and you're good. It's not the way it works. It's not a deal where you come down to the altar, you pray a prayer, 
It's not a rededication. It is a daily struggle because we live in the shadow of Genesis 3. And none of us is who we're, spo- is who we're supposed to be. And brothers and sisters, we can't do this alone. We absolutely cannot do this alone. We depend upon the help of the Holy Spirit, first to give us the desire to change. And so we have to pray daily, Lord Jesus, through the power of your Holy Spirit who lives in me, give me the wisdom to know where I need to change, and then help me to want to change. Do you find that to be the case? Sometimes there are are pet sins that you've got stashed away in the dark recesses of your heart or mind. They're there. You know they're there, but you don't really want to do the deep cleaning to get rid of them. You sort of made peace with the enemy. It really requires conviction of the Holy Spirit to deal with those things, to want to change, because it's hard work. And in dealing with this change requires us to take that hammer and to take that nail and deliberately and intentionally crucify the sinful desires of the flesh. But not only do we require the help of the Holy Spirit to do this work, we also require the love and support of our brothers and sisters in Christ. You cannot walk this path alone, or I should say you're not meant to walk this path alone. We are here to help and encourage one another. It's one of the many graces of the church. The church exists for God's glory, but in so many ways it exists for our good. I'll share with you briefly a very personal example of what I'm talking about here. As many of y'all are aware, January was a terrible month for me personally and professionally. Um, I was dealing with a, a trial in federal court where it seemed to me that there was just this, a tremendous amount of, of good versus evil at play. And as an officer of the court, but also as someone who, who's placed there as part of civil government through the lens of, of Romans 13, I'm just, I have this, this magnitude of, you know, I've got to do the right thing. I've got to, I've got to honor Christ. I've got to do my work. And, and as that's playing out, of course, one of my clients faces a huge public relations nightmare that's spotted all over the, the media. And I get caught up in that. And it seemed for weeks on end, every day I was hearing something in the paper or the press where, where my name was, was being used in contexts that weren't always flattering. And I was getting incredibly frustrated. Incredibly frustrated. And then just to top off the month, I kid you not, on January 31, Sarah Grace and I had to go put our dog down. It's like, really? I mean, this is, it seems like a small thing in the, in the, in the magnitude. It's like one thing after another, one thing after another. And during that time, I was just, I was saying, God, help me here. And, and, and I felt the anger rising. I really, really did. But, but God in his grace took me by the shoulder, pulled me aside, and, and really walked me through the question, why was I, why was I angry? I mean, yes, there were people who were misrepresenting what I was saying and, and, and misconstruing things, but why was I really angry? Set aside whether I was being wronged, why was I really angry? And I realized, in the midst of this, well, I moved the slide already, I was jealous. Go back up to, to, to uh, Galatians 5. One of those underlying terms is jealousy. I was jealous for my good reputation. That mattered a lot to me. 
And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that at the, at the very center of my heart, I had a really big shiny idol because I craved the approval of other people, which is kind of ironic considering what God has called me to do. But it's a thorn in my flesh. It's something that, that's there that I have to deal with constantly. I constantly have to realize that that is an idol of mine. And I have to be very deliberate about going before God and sacrificing it. Always been there, and I am ashamed that I still have to deal with that after so many years of walking with Christ. But God in his grace didn't simply provide the Holy Spirit. God in his grace provided so many of you to reach out to me or to Karen and, and to ask, hey, how can we pray for you? How can we help you? There were good and godly ladies who... who, who ministered to Karen. There were some really good godly men who grabbed me and laid hands on me and prayed for me. And then there's, there's dear little William Bainey, who one day saw me on TV, and he didn't know why I was on TV. And he said, it's Mr. Famous. I didn't know my friend was Mr. Famous. And, and so he sees me, and he runs up to me, and, and he gives me a hug. He didn't know what was going on. All he knew is his friend looked like he needed a hug. And I share this because I look out here and I see so many people who have needed that hug or that cold cup of water offered in the name of Christ or some other tender mercy that, that only a good and faithful believer can offer. And I see so many more of you who have stood ready time and again to offer that hug or to prepare that meal or to offer that cold cup of water. Because that's what it means to be in a fellowship of believers. When one part of the body hurts, the other part of the body ministers to it. That's what we do. And so I say to you now, if you are hurting, if you are sick, or if you, if you feel yourself under trial, folks, press into the church. Your fallen nature wants you to feel embarrassed or isolated. Satan wants you to feel cut off from the rest of the pack. God wants you to press in. He wants you to be where you can be taken care of. And for those of you who are not yet sick or hurting, your time will come. Be involved in the church. Be involved in a small group or a flock. Press into our ministries, not only so that we can take care of you when your time comes, but also so that you can stand ready to help your brothers and sisters in Christ. Because you see, folks, when you take up your cross, pain will come. Again, this is an image of an execution, and the nails start to hit flesh. And when the nails hit the flesh, it hurts. No two ways about it. And whether you get that diagnosis you've been dreading, or some calamity falls your family, or there's economic chaos at work, whatever happens, we are reminded in, uh, in James that for those of us who have been redeemed and are being redeemed by Jesus Christ, we're called to count these sufferings as joy when we meet these trials. Because our suffering can be redeemed by him. Our faith can be purified and refined and developed and grown. And even if we don't fully understand what's going on, we read in James 1.5 that we can pray to God for wisdom and he will give it to us. Now, God may not answer the questions that we're asking, but he's answering the questions we should be asking. There's a big difference. The tragedy is not when people suffer. We, we re read in Job that man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. The tragedy is when we suffer and we don't 
see it as an opportunity for our faith to be refined and developed and polished and for God to be glorified. Because you see, for those of us who claim the name of Christ, we worship a God who is sovereign over all things. Through all sicknesses, all illnesses, all diagnoses, all calamities, all struggle and strife. Romans 8.28 is always true. All things work together for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. Not some things, not most things. Truly, brothers and sisters, all things work together for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. And even when we do not fully understand what he's doing, we know his hand is, is behind the events. And brothers and sisters, that is so encouraging. And I don't understand how people can live in a world where they think anything else. That must be a terrifying thought to think that either God is not all-powerful or God doesn't care. But we know that the promise of 828 is there and it's true, and that gives us comfort. And so we've denied ourselves. We've taken up our cross. We're committed to following Christ. Galatians 5.16 tells us that if we walk by the Spirit, we won't gratify the desires of the flesh. And you see, that's an important point because we're going to worship something. And the only way we can truly leave the tomb behind is if we commit to following him. And again, this has to be a deliberate decision we make day by day by day. Because this really is a constant struggle. None of us is morally neutral. If you are not actively committed to growing in your faith, then the voice you hear is the one behind you. That's not what we're called to do. We're called to follow Christ. And the truth is, as, as, as Peter says in, in John 6, 68, where else shall we go? What else shall we do? I mean, who else has the words of eternal life? Are we going to find grace or salvation through the affairs of this world? Are we going to find true comfort through our 401ks? Are we going to find hope in the next election? Where is our salvation found? Paul answers this question in resounding terms in Philippians 3. He looks at the accomplishments of the flesh, his, his fleshly resume, if you will, and he compares them against the hope that he has in Christ. And Paul, by way of background, uh, he, he was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Jew of the Jews. He was born to the right family, right circumstances, had the right upbringing. We read in Acts that he was studying under a, a very well-known rabbi who was very influential in the Sanhedrin. So think of Paul as being like maybe a clerk for a Supreme Court justice. I mean, he was on a great track to do big and great things in the Jewish world. And he looked at that and, he's, and he says, I count it all rubbish compared to knowing Christ. Now, to really understand the magnitude of what, of what Paul is saying there, the word that we translate in the ESV as rubbish is the Greek word skubion. The, the King James actually does a better job translating it as dung. Most modern commentaries would, would say, really a, a, a good 21st century American translation would be crap. And, and you know, it's a little weird saying that in church, but, you know, that's, that's the word. But for cleaner ears, I'm going to say done, okay? So you, but you understand what I'm saying, right? Go like this. You understand what I'm saying? So he says, look, 
Look at everything I've accomplished. Look at who I am. I've gone to the right schools. I know the right people. I'm connected. I consider it dung compared to knowing Christ. And there are at least two things that, that you can think of about dung, right? At least two things. Number one, it's not worth a whole lot. And number two, <laughs> it's really kind of unhealthy to keep around, right? It's not worth much, and you, and you wouldn't want to keep it around. And in fact, keeping it around is unhealthy. It's actually unhealthy. And so when he's making this comparison, it's an extremely useful comparison for us because compared to knowing Christ, the things we accomplish in this world, the things we accumulate in this world, it's, it's, it's worthless. And in fact, the more we fix on the things of this world, the more we put our hope and stock in things of this world, the more unhealthy we are spiritually. As a matter of fact, it can be dangerous. We're called to follow Christ. We're not called to accumulate success here. We're not called to accumulate things here. Now, there's nothing wrong with having material possessions in this world. There's nothing wrong with doing what God has called you to do, and if the world notices, so be it. But the question is, where do you put your hope? Where do you put your faith and your trust? And if you're called to, are you willing to take the essence of who the world sees you to be, and are you willing to deny it? Are you willing to search out the idols of your heart and to break them day by day by day? Are you willing to find that part of your human nature that keeps creating those idols and sacrifice it as a living sacrifice? And then having done so, are you willing to run hard after Jesus? Because that is where our salvation is found. So pray with me. Father God, Earlier we sang a song that Josh penned and we sang from our hearts, we rest in Christ who intercedes, completely saves, completely frees. His death prevailed, the victory won, and so with confidence we come and trust in Christ and Him alone. Father, I wish that that were wholly and completely true for each of us all the time. But the truth is, Father, so often we hear the seductive call of the sin nature coming from the grave. It's over our shoulder, but we listen. And so often the things of this world, though they are fleeting, seem far more real to us than the promises you give us for following you. We confess we are so short-sighted. Our senses are so dumbed by the, the attractions of this world, we do not clearly hear your voice in the ears of our heart. Forgive us. And Father, through the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray that you will give us the grace to love you more, the grace to want to change, the grace to see the idols that must break the grace to have the strength to hold that nail steady, to pull back that hammer and to strike the blow, and then to do it again and again and again. Because you, Lord Jesus, are worthy. Amen.